pray with me once again? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the privilege of having it proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that you would bless this or bless the preaching of your word, the heralding of your word, Lord. And I pray that we would receive your word as the voice of our good shepherd who, um, who heals the broken, who forgives sinners, who works holiness in sinners, and who strengthens weak knees. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, if everybody's ready, I hope you did bring your running shoes. Today, what we're going to be doing, instead of a sermon, what we're going to be doing is everybody is going to be jogging on the spot for about 45 minutes. I feel like this could actually help us get to know better. I think this is an activity that we can get to know God better in. So I'd like you all to do that. That's a command. None of you listened. That's good. Do you ever wonder why? Why would that be wrong of me to instruct us to do, to require that, to lead us in on a Sunday morning when we have all worshipped together? Now, if we all want to go for a jog afterward, that's fine. But why is that wrong? Why would that wrong be wrong for the leaders of God's church to say, Let's, we're doing this together, we're all gathered together, this is what we're doing? Have you ever considered why that would be the case? If I told you that I have rented five elephants and we're all going to take turns as part of our worship service to go take elephant rides outside, why would you be wrong for saying that that's actually not part of the worship service? Last week, we, we looked at how the church is part of God's plan to expose false assurance in people and to work true Christ gospel-anchored assurance in those who are actually God's people. His plan to cast aside fears of condemnation and to work confidence that their sins are forgiven, that their wrath has been absorbed by Christ on the cross, and that they are now beloved children of God, and that he will not let them go. His plan to prepare them for suffering by giving them assurance. His plan to prepare them and strengthen them against temptation by giving them assurance. Now, we believe that God has an invisible church of all times and places. There's people who are Christians that you will not see this side of glory because you will die before that they become saved, or they died before you became saved, or they live in a different part of the world. So this is an invisible church of all times and places. But he promises that you can delight in this sweet gift of assurance without knowing every Christian who has ever lived and who ever will live, which is good because that won't happen. He promises to use local churches. An actual church is a group of Christians formed into a, a group committed to the regular preaching of the gospel and the regular use of baptism and Lord's Supper, and then who insist on those things for each other. We call this church discipline, who insist on these things for each other. These are also those things which God promises to use to remove false assurance and create true faith 
and then work assurance of that faith. The question is, do we simply have those elements and then it's left to our own imaginations on how, how to use those things to worship God? Can we improve those things? Can we replace them with something similar if we're convinced that that will work better? If perhaps our culture likes those things more? Can we add to them? Now, the question can be boiled down to this. Here's, here's the question. Can we boil it down to this? When the church gathers as the church to worship the Lord, should we do anything that God has not forbidden? Or should we do only those things which God has commanded? He hasn't forbidden elephant riding. So should we do anything that the Lord hasn't forbidden, or should we do only those things which God has commanded? The answer that Scripture gives to that question is that we are to only do those things which God has commanded. Putting it in terms of a feast, think about it in terms of a feast set before us. It becomes abundantly clear when we consider whose house it is. Who has created the menu? Who is serving up the menu? And when we see the purpose of that food. God has so designed the worship of the people which he has saved that it would be purely for his glory and it would be a pure benefit to their most pressing needs. The needs they may not be aware of, but the needs that he is aware of, the most pressing needs. He has invited us to his house to worship him by eating and being satisfied with the food which he has personally selected for us and served to us. And when he told Peter in John 20, you remember that scene after his resurrection? He meets with Peter, he's all the disciples, but he selects Peter specifically, and he three times asks him, do you love me? And when he tells Peter to feed his sheep, not Peter's sheep, but Jesus' sheep, he didn't leave it for Peter or for church shepherds after him to figure out what and how to feed them. He provided rich food for his precious blood-bought, enemy-turned-family. Brings us to our first point. And that is, the church is the adopted household of God. The church is the adopted household of God. First, we need to begin with seeing that the church is a household, but it isn't an ordinary household. It's true it's a household, it's not an ordinary one. It is the household of the living God. And we're going to be reading 1 Timothy 3. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to read the whole thing. And I want you to notice, as we're going to be reading 1 Timothy 3, I want you to notice the times that the phrase household is used. It's repeated. That's not for no reason. Look at all the ways the word household is used. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an, office, uh, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, he will, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The church is the adopted household of God. Verse 15, we see that. There are many households, though. Some households are led well. Some are led poorly. Some are Christian households. Some are Muslim households. Some are pagan households. You are in a household. Even if you are living on your own as a single adult, you manage your life. You make decisions. You use things for the betterment of your household to build a life. You decide, which, you decide things which other households would not decide. You decide many things which, uh, because, and, and it's fine that they, they don't decide those things because the, they have the freedom to run their households the way that they see fit. And the Lord would agree. You would serve different food. You might take an interest in photography, where another household might be more orientated to bobsledding or chess. The head of every household will be accountable to God to govern their household in ways which glorify God, in ways which honor God's commands. But you have the freedom to make many decisions which are not a matter of right and wrong, and often not even a matter of wisdom, but simply of preference. And this is good, and it's part of the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve and then to Noah after the flood, right? To fill the earth, to rule it, to subdue the earth. Not destroy it, but to rule it, to shape it, to cause human flourishing, to build lives and societies and families, to, to, to cause human flourishing. And, and he gave Adam and Eve and Noah, again, he gave them ex authority to exercise that, in a sense. See, there's a number of qualifications for an elder or a deacon in the church. But one of them is that a man has managed his own household well. And it is his household. It's not the church's household, it's his household. 
Now, of course, it's under God's authority. You can't escape God's authority. But if a person questions parents for why they made certain decisions, so long as there is no scripture broken, a legitimate answer would be, because this is my family and this is what we choose to do. But that's not how it is with the church. Leaders in a church cannot act as if the church is their household. Because it's not. They may be the heads of their own households, and they must be godly heads of their households, but the church is not their household. And they are certainly not the head of the church. That's a heretical doctrine, which is central to Roman Catholicism, and it's garbage. And I'm quite concerned that modern evangelicalism, much of modern evangelicalism, has adopted the results of that while not being as honest about the theology behind the practice. At least Rome has tried to explain why the Pope can treat the church as if it was his household. They're wrong, but at least they've tried to explain this and said that he is the head of the church. See, leaders ought to exercise authority differently in the church than in their own households because in the home they are the heads, in the church, Christ is the head. So what does it mean then for Christ to be the head of the church? It means in all things that she submits to him. It also means this. It means that he considers the church as his own body. He considers her sins as if they were his own. He considers her pain as if it were his own. He considers her future as if it were her own. He takes responsibility for her. He takes responsibility for the church's righteousness. So he took her sins upon himself on the cross, and he has covered her with his own righteousness. He gave her his record, and he took her rotten record off of her. And then he was clothed with her record of sin and wretchedness and damnation on the cross. As if it were his own. And then he gives her his Holy Spirit to work righteousness within her, not so that she can be saved, but the result of her being saved. He has secured the church's eternal future by taking her death and giving her eternal life. And he has sworn to build and keep the church. Jesus said this, I will build my church. He has sworn by his own name. God swearing by his own name that he will build the church means that if the church would not to succeed, then God would cease to exist. God being God. That cannot happen. And so the church's foundation is sure. That's what it means for somebody to be the head of the church. There are no men in this room who have done anything close to that for the church. And so none of them better dare act like they are the head of the church. Only Christ is the head of the church. It is his household. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to see this comparison. It's specifically to marriage. But it's giving us an understanding of Christ's headship of the church, the family, the household, being a living parable, marriage specifically here, although we see other passages where it's compared to the whole 
household, the whole family, but specifically we're looking at Christ's headship of the church through the living parable of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. No man who has not borne the wrath of God for the church may treat her as if she was his body and he were her head. No man who has not died that death and sworn that oath in his own name can treat the church as if it were his household. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified and can be trusted with that kind of leadership in the church. The church, and therefore all churches, are the household of God. Christ has not given the church to be the household of any other man but the Lord Jesus Christ, and hallelujah for that. And we are part of his household, part of the household of God by faith. He adds us to his family and to the household by faith in Christ. Christ died for sinners, and he adds them to his household by faith in the gospel, that Jesus died and rose for our sins. He suffered in our place as enemies so that we can enjoy his place in the household of God. Your household can reflect your interests and priorities. But so often now, the case is that a church reflects the interest and ideas and priorities of the pastor. It's so common that it's not shocking It would have been shocking a hundred years ago to say that. People would be upset, and rightly so, to say that a church follows the personality interests of the pastor. But now it's common. Christ has entrusted the church, his bride, to pastors. Not as heads of the church, but as stewards. To care for them and love them. Paul Washer illustrates this point by comparing this to a man entrusted with the care of a a king's wife who dresses up the king's wife in unnatural ways and parades her around like a whore, hoping that wicked men who hate the king and who hate the beauty which the king finds attractive and find it to be unappealing. To try to make that bride appealing to the desires of wicked men. What often happens is the pastor seeks approval of the culture around him. And and when this happens, he's acting like that man 
who forces another man's wife to dress in ways that her wicked neighbors find attractive and enticing. Look exciting. Be interesting. Be crazy. Don't let people know you're tired. Hide your pain. Or maybe let's exploit your pain. Let's put it on display. And this is what has been done in the seeker-sensitive church movement a couple of decades ago. It was also called the church growth movement. This is a movement which, sadly, this very church participated gladly in. I myself have also, in the past, bought into many of these ideas, and I've had to repent of those things. And I often worry about the terrible impact that this has had and continues to have on the people that I have ministered to. This is a kind of leadership which tried to make the church attractive by the world's standards while trying not to break too many of the commands that God gave for the church. But this robbed God of his glory. It treated the church as if it were the bride of the leaders. And it robbed the church of much of the rich, assuring work which God promised to do for the church. It was as if the church would say, I'm tired. I just need to have a good meal. And the pastor responds, you selfish woman. What will the neighbors think? They don't like good food. They like candy. Quit being so selfish and, and wanting a meal. So pastor shamed the bride of Christ and made her feel guilty for desiring things which the Lord said she should desire. And it resulted in many people who were not saved having assurance that they actually were. And perhaps just as terrible, many dear saints floundering in unnecessary doubts and worries about the Lord's unfailing, steadfast, permanent covenant love for them. One final piece from 1 Timothy 3 as we've read it which would be helpful for us to consider, consider before moving on to our next point. Now, the church is the household of God and, and for a purpose. The church is gathered, it assembles, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's our verse 15. Its express purpose as it gathers for worship is not to be the truth, but to be a pillar of the truth, to be a buttress, a support to it. It's not like the word of God needs support. It's not so weak that it needs propping up. It's more powerful than anything. We know that. But the church, the household of God, has the express purpose to support people with the gospel, to hold people up with the gospel. That brings us to our second point. A church gathers as one body in the name of the Lord. You might wonder then about what it means to be in two households. Right? I am part of a household where I am the head. And I'm also part of the household where I'm not the head. And it's not like I'm sometimes part of the church and sometimes part of my family. No, I'm always part of both households. Yes, that's extremely true. And we can... See, though, this pattern throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament. God's word 
describes what obedience looks like based on the purpose or the name by which you're gathered in. You see this in the Old Testament. God gave many laws which govern the life of his people, govern individual households. And these laws included things that you must do and things that you must not do. See, a man was free to choose to be a butcher or baker or a candlestick maker. Even though God didn't tell him to do any of those things in his words, so long as it wasn't forbidden, and he was able to do those things while still faithfully caring for his family, he's free to choose because it's his household. And so he worshiped God by imitating God's rule, by exercising his rule in his family. Some food was forbidden, we know that, but most was merely a choice of what was either available or preference. Some marriage was forbidden, but which spouse you pick was a matter of choice, either your own or your parents. But this was never the case. This kind of a freedom was never the case in terms of gathering together as God's household, particularly when they gathered together as one man for worship. We read that phrase in Nehemiah earlier today, didn't we? That all Israel gathered as one man in Nehemiah 8 for the purpose of being the household of God. That house, since God was the head, was governed in a different way. It was, rather than do as you wish, so long God has not, as God has not forbidden it, it was do only the things that God has commanded. And we see this most clearly in the design for the temple in Exodus 25. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. But it wasn't just the building itself, but all that went into it. You can see this in a passage that refers later on in Exodus 25, a, a, a passage that refers to the articles in the temple. The lampstands and utensils for tending the lampstands. Verse 40 of Exodus 25. And see, to, uh, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So the priests were not permitted to add to the temple. You couldn't add another room. Couldn't add another altar. Couldn't add another sacrifice. Well, I think this would be interesting. I feel the people would benefit from this. Add their own flair. Now, we read in Leviticus 10 about what happened when two priests tried to do that. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, tried to do this. And let's read that in Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not, doesn't say commanded, which he had not or not permitted, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, but, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so priests were free to arrange their own households as they wished, but they were not permitted to do so with God's house or God's household. The place where people gather, God's people gathered as one man in the name of the Lord. So we see this pattern continue in the New Testament when the, with the church made of believers, living stones. 
a new physical temple. The temple still is physical. We saw that last week. A new physical temple to replace the physical temple, which was made of stone stones. And now the temple is made of living stones. There is a difference between gathering as one man, as a church, or being a person who is part of a church. We can see this in Matthew 18, verse 15. We read this last week, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. If he, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we notice that so we, we have this idea of two members of the same church are talking and agreeing or disagreeing, but they aren't the church. But they can tell it to the church. Notice also that Christians are not always gathered. They're not always assembled in the name of Christ. We see that in verse 20. Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. It's not wrong for them to sometimes not be assembled in Christ's name. In fact, most of the time they will not be. So we read in 1 Corinthians 5 last week, when speaking of church discipline, we see this as well. A man is committing adultery with his stepmother, and here's how the church responds. And I want you to notice that idea of gathered and assembled in the name of the Lord. Paul saying to the Corinthian church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see that? Sometimes they're assembled in the name of the Lord, and sometimes they're not. Hebrews chapter 10, let's, let's see this as well in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so you can see the responsibility to regularly assemble together as one man as the household of god for the purpose of worship and confessing the gospel and of holiness and of assurance of faith. We're not always doing that, but we are to regularly do that. Sometimes we're gathered in the name, I'm gathered in the name of the DeVries family and encouraging people in the Lord. 
Sometimes the church is gathered in the name of hunger at a restaurant and encouraging each other in the Lord. It's fantastic. Sometimes they are gathered in the name of Bob's welding shop as co-workers who are encouraging one another in the Lord while firing up torches. And it's sweet and it's pleasing to the Lord and the Holy Spirit is active at work in them. But other times they are assembled as the body of Christ, as the household of God, as the church, as one man. And so here we can see how this ties together with the doctrine of Christian freedom. The doctrine of Christian freedom is what God has not commanded, we cannot command people to do in his name. It's a very important doctrine. If the Bible doesn't command you to be a butcher, you don't have to be a butcher. We can't add spiritual duties, moral requirements to God's people. But, I hope you've seen that assembling together as one body is a duty and need which Christ has actually given to each believer. Each believer does have that responsibility to gather as one man with their church. So Christians can expect that of one another, to join a church and to regularly assemble together. That's very clear in Hebrews 10, which we just read. So church leaders can expect and even require that of people who are in their care. They can expect and encourage it and exhort them to participate in the public worship and in all the parts of it. Because Christ requires those things of them. And so the minute a pastor adds something to the worship service, which is not required by God, he's actually requiring the church to participate in things which God has not required them to participate in. If I say, let's sing together, I'm not adding a requirement because Christ says let's sing together. If I say, let's go ride elephants together, I'm adding a requirement because Christ has not required that we all ride elephants It brings us to our third point. The head of the church serves up the ways which the word of Christ will dwell richly within her. The head of the church serves up the ways which the word of Christ will dwell richly within her. And so first, we've we've established that the church assembles as one body, which means that for it to be an actual church worship service, everyone's invited. The whole church is invited. Having a family from church over at your home for a meal is fantastic. But it isn't the church gathering as one body as the church because not everybody's invited. It's your household, and they are guests. Feed them what you wish, or I guess feed them what they wish, but don't demand that they eat it. So then, what are the things which the Lord, the master of the house, tells his stewards to set the table with? those things which will glorify his name and which he has promised to use to to work his beautiful, assuring work in his church's heart. What did Jesus tell Peter to feed Jesus' sheep with? So what can Peter require the sheep to eat? We're going to fly through these because for for the most part, each of these is going to get its own sermon. But first, we see this idea of the the Word of God dwelling richly in the church. Colossians chapter 3, 16 to 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first ingredient is the gathering of the church as one body. The second is the word of Christ. Christ has provided, and he's serving up a few different ways in his worship service that the word of God would dwell in her richly. And first, we're going to see the public reading of the word, the public reading of the word. 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So read the word of God publicly. Let the word of the good shepherd who laid down his life, let that voice fill the ears of the sheepfold. Second, preaching of the word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So read the word of God publicly and then preach it. Give the sense of it. As we saw in Nehemiah, read it and then give the sense of it. Proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior of the church with it. Put an elder in front of the church to herald it like it's a news report while the church sits under the teaching and drinks of Christ's promises together. Next, the songs of the saints. We already read this in in Colossians 3. This is one of the ways that the word of Christ is to dwell richly in us. We sing both to the Lord and to each other. Did you notice that? We're singing to the Lord, but we're also singing to each other. We're admonishing one another. He fills the lungs of his people with his praises, with truths from his word. The church puts those things which God has said, puts them to music and sings them. We write music. We create lyrics, but those lyrics restate what God's word says, maybe in different words. We're not free to sing what might be true about God, what we think is true about God, or we want to be true about God. Just like a sermon takes the word of God and shares and explains and summarizes it, so too must the songs of the saints be. And God desires that his his house is filled with them. And the focus we can see here is on congregational singing, the church singing to each other, not the church listening to a performance but the church itself singing. Add trumpets and drums to accompany those voices. Delight in it. See, a lot of the Psalms say that. Grieve together in song. Rejoice together in song. This is a need of yours, and it is a duty. It is a glad duty. The Lord uses it. He swears to use it to feed his dear people. You may not have a good voice, We've actually put together a list of all the members in the church who have a good voice and those who don't have a good voice. You may not have a good voice, but you are not permitted to question whether your sisters and brothers in Christ need to see you and hear you join your voice to theirs as they struggle to sing praises to the Lord. You know, one of your sisters in Christ, she may have had a terrible week And her faith is struggling, and she can just barely get the words confessing Christ out of her mouth. Her faith is so weak. And then you join your voice to hers, and you add strength to it as the whole church sings together. 
as we saw two weeks ago, if you are singing true things about the Lord and actually meaning them, you can't get credit for that. That was the Holy Spirit who was working in you. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't sing true things about the Lord and mean it. And so you are then participating in the Spirit's work to expose false assurance and to bolster confidence and assurance of faith in your struggling brothers and sisters. That is your glad duty to them. Next, the prayers. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, the church the household of the living God prays together. We pray as a family to our Father in the name of Christ. It's a gift which he requires us to give to our brothers and sisters. Pray with them. They're going to need it. To pray for the things which he has instructed us to pray for, which he has modeled for us to pray for. Praying with confidence to God as Father Christ quoted the Old Testament to say that his house shall be a house of prayer. And the next, we already dealt with this last week, but God's own design for the word made visible, the sacraments or the ordinances, the word made visible. Baptism and Lord's Supper. So God has also commanded that the gospel, the word may be made visible through baptism and Lord's Supper. His his promises are pictured in these. And so he makes these promises and then we trust, we, we, pro, we show that we trust these promises. And he's commanded that we do these as part of our regular assembling together as a church. It's his command. And it's his own picture of the gospel. Do not try to improve the Mona Lisa. This is not your art show. It's not showing God things that you think about him through your art. We're not trying to say something that will convince God to trust us. He is saying something to make us trust him. And so these are the gifts which God himself has provided to assure us and remind us of God's gospel promises which Christ purchased for the church with his precious blood. Each of these beautiful, ordinary elements is going to look different from church to church and from culture to culture. We're going to sing in different languages, more or less or different instruments, longer or shorter sermons, more or less scriptures going to be read, details which do matter and they must be made using biblical wisdom. You've got to make sure that you are accomplishing the biblical goals rather than confusing those things. You need wisdom and you're going to need scripture to help you make those calls. This is a, a cultural variety within that 
ordinary meal. So you see some of that diversity, but also sameness that Christ has promised, it demonstrates that Christ has promised to build one church worldwide out of many nations. So that sameness with diversity. So that when a believer would visit another church, he would recognize the sweet aroma of the household of Christ. This is a place that is his household. I know it. He's told me how to tell. So brothers and sisters, here we are once again, gathered as the household of God. When we leave today, we don't stop being God's children. We don't stop being brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually don't stop being a church. But it doesn't mean that we won't long for the next time when God will call us together as a church for the single purpose of glorifying him by feasting on a meal that he himself has prepared. When we publicly take the shape of God's household, when he reminds us through the the prayers and the preaching and reading of God's word with baptism and Lord's Supper and the songs of our brothers and sisters, where he reminds us that we have a place in the family of God because the Son of God took our place as an enemy of God on the cross. So we can together delight in our divine adoption while in our own households. That's beautiful. But for the glory of his name and for the good of his dearly loved church, he calls us to regularly, weekly, assemble together as one body, as the household of God, to expose false assurance, to create true gospel faith, and to work assurance of faith in the weak hearts of his blood-bought children. The gospel, remember, is not just that Christ forgives sins. It is definitely that. It is more. The gospel is that Christ died and rose for enemies of God to make us the household of God. And so it is a gift that he insists we assemble weekly together to demonstrate that and delight in that and worship him in light of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful, Lord, that you have given us households. It is wonderful for you to help us run our households in godly ways, but it is so much sweeter that you have also put us into your household where you are the head, where you take responsibility for, you even took the wrath that was deserved by the household of God. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape us into a church that delights in your commands, that proclaims you, that delights in the proclamation of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would use this church to glorify your name Lord, use the, the preaching of the gospel in the many ways it's preached to bring sinners to repentance, to trust in Christ that they might be added to your household. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.